Hello and welcome to Cloud9fin, a podcast and all things leverage finance. We follow corporate debt from issuance to redemption, credits from performing to distress, and everything in between. I'm Bianca Borer, your host in London. Okay, so today I'm sitting in JP Morgan's office to do a special Q&A with their head of EMEA Leverage Finance Debt Capital Markets, Ben Thompson. Ben has been at JP Morgan's Debt Capital Markets team since 2011 and has started heading up the team in 2020. Before joining the European team, he was in New York working with the bank's syndicated and leveraged finance team for 16 years. He stayed loyal to the bank for his career so far with a total of 30 years, um, starting his career at the bank's telecom, media and technology investment banking coverage group. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast, Ben. Well, thanks. Thanks for having us on. We're, we're big fans of Ninefin and glad to be here. Amazing. That's what we love to hear. So yeah, let's get into it. So I mean, initially, I was going to start off the podcast talking about our loans reports at Laura Thompson's Q1 report, which went through Ninefin's data of issuance during the quarter. It showed that it was down 22% year over year. Um, but I mean, maybe things are taking a turn. I mean, Q2, you know, last week we had five bond deals. Today, I've been told there are three high yield bond deals from JP Morgan this morning. Um, so maybe talk us through this sudden turn. Yes. So it, I, I'm not sure it's really a sudden turn. I think it's been the, the current glut of activity. And we saw a busy week last week, as you mentioned, and a very, very busy Monday starting off today. Uh, some of it is a bit of a delayed calendar. So we did have the period of volatility going back several weeks when we had the Silicon Valley Bank news and other banks in the U.S., followed by the CS news uh, and a lot of nervousness about the the market on the, on the fin, in the fin space. But since that period, we got through that period, the market has actually been very benign. So if you look at how things have traded in the last four to five weeks now, it's been a fairly flat uh, period, So, which is the kind of market you want because credit investors begin to feel comfortable that they can digest where levels should clear for new issue. Uh, and as a result, we've now seen a number of issuers and borrowers come to market and start to, to try to access capital now that the market conditions have become more benign. So back to the start of that, I think the reason we're so busy now, a number of the transactions, including some that have launched today, were on a trajectory from, from a timetable point of view to launch in this window anyway. But you do have an additional cohort of transactions which were poised to go right around the time of the bank disruption uh, when we had the Silicon Valley and, and CS news that have now also started to come to market in the, in this window. So it's going to be a fairly busy several weeks here, but we've been anticipating that for a while and may not have been visible to the broader market, but I think the underwriting banks would have all been able to tell you that there was a fair bit of new issue calendar coming. And so far, the reception to the transactions that have come to market, including last week's, uh, cohort has been very positive. So touch wood, we hope to get the same outcome on the transactions that have launched uh, as early as this morning. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, the other sort of metrics that we looked at from Q1, I mean, we looked at sort of pricing and the average deal sizes and original issue discounts. I mean, can you talk us through what sort of um, trends we're seeing in Q2 so far in terms of pricing and other metrics? Sure. It, it, uh, we have seen, we have seen a you know, a modest widening as a result of some of that volatility that I mentioned that occurred several weeks ago. But on balance, the, the you know, the damage, if you will, from that period has been fairly limited. So if you wanted the you know, seat of the pants type review of where pricing is, maybe we're 25 basis points wider in terms of yields, but it's really not that material. 
And encouragingly, even with that disruption that we saw several weeks ago, we have seen the market willing to digest some fairly you know, difficult credit stories, some more challenging names, some weaker rated issuance. So two of the bond deals at price last week were B3 rated. So there is a demand for risk out there as long as people are willing to meet the investors' criteria for you know what they think is fair yield for that kind for that kind of risk. So I don't think you've seen for some of the you know quote unquote easier names, the strong single Bs and up into the weak double Bs, people are willing to put money to work at a fairly at fairly attractive rates. So a case in point would be the action deal which priced last Friday which was upsized from 1.5 billion to 2.5 billion euros and priced at a spread of 375 over at an OID of 98 and a half. You can argue sort of best in class name, BA3, double B minus rated, years and years of strong uh, organic growth in the business, comfortable leverage levels, large cap over a billion of EBITDA. So it has a lot, it ticks a lot of the boxes, but still being able to access the market at 375 and 98 and a half in size is, is I think a pretty positive uh, positive read for how the market will price risk right now. So a very long answer to your question. It feels as if the market's a bit wider, but not so not not materially and certainly not to a level that makes it difficult for people to access. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned in uh, your first answer about the, the market being more benign. Is this the sort of normalized market? Are we ever going to go back to a normalized market or is this sort of like the new normal? The new normal is that there is no new normal, I think, uh, is is the soundbite. I mean, we've seen, if you think about what we've gone through in the last several years, you know, starting in 2020, you know, COVID and, and all the challenges that came with that and how the market reacted to that right into the highest volume year ever in 2021 and the frantic pace of issuance there and you know very aggressive market conditions in a positive sense you know into the invasion last year and what that did to the market over the course of 2022 and all the losses that banks were were forced to take on the underwritten transactions into what felt like it was a fairly constructive start of this year only to have that derailed by unexpected events that people really didn't foresee in in the financial services sector so i think that is the new normal that we will have these periods of volatility sometimes from anticipated sources such as inflation and central banks raising rates and the economy cooling off and the consumer coming under stress all of these well telegraphed events will continue to create periods of volatility but then there are going to be the exogenous things like, you know, an invasion uh, of Ukraine or bank failures in the U.S. that just aren't on people's radar screens. And thus far, I think, look, if you look at how the market has behaved over that incredibly protracted period, well, it feels incredibly protracted because it's been, been a long few years, but over that three-year period, the market has shown a consistent resilience and willingness to get back to work and put money to work. And I think that's down to the fundamental technical that underlies the credit markets right now globally, which is there is a lot of money that is looking to go to work in investments that provide yield. And we now, if you look across the leveraged finance markets globally, you now have products which are yielding mid to high single digits in many cases for well-structured, very bankable names. And that's a real change from where we were three years ago, where that same cohort of uh, issuers and borrowers would have yielded you three and a half or four percent. And just that headline number being higher and equities having run as far as they have, if you're balancing where you're putting your money to work right now, are you buying credit that can yield on the investment grade side, you know, three to four percent, all the way up to through to high yield where you can get to nine to ten percent. 
how does that look compared to how far you think equities will run in the next 12 to 18 months? It's a pretty attractive asset class, and we feel that uh, we feel the weight of people trying to get into the asset class by putting money in, whether it's through mutual flows or CLO formation or any of these other ways that money gets into the leveraged credit markets. The demand definitely is there. The other side of it is back to your back to one of your prior questions. Supply has been very tough to source. So if you look at volumes, you know, last year was a very low volume year after the record in 2021, and this year volumes are anemic. And importantly, a huge amount of the volume that is coming through the market this year is refinancing volume. So it's great. It's a headline. You think about something like action, a two and a half billion you know, euro deal. It's huge. But it was replacing just under 2.4 billion of existing paper that was in the hands of lenders already. So it's that lack of net new supply that keeps that technical imbalance, money trying to get invested, and really not a lot of net new supply. Yeah, I think you've jumped ahead to my next ha. question. I mean, like, yeah, you've read my mind. Um, I mean, almost half of the issuance last quarter was uh, 44% or 45% was, was refinancings. So, I mean, do you think this trend is set to continue? Yeah, it feels it feels that way. We still do have a fair amount of, of existing maturities that are going to come due in 24 and particularly 25 is a big year up towards 100 billion across European high yield bonds and leverage loans. So there's a fair amount of wood to chop just in terms of refinancing activity. Um, one of the deals we launched this morning was it was a straight refinancing of a of a 24 maturity. And then there's an interesting uh, exchange offer attached to that, which will allow investors who are embedded in their 25 maturities, if they choose to, to effectively roll into our new five-year bond deal. So there will be, you know, action, again, was another one, in recent deals like Banerjee and Motor Fuel Group. I mean, there's been this steady flow of refinancing activity. But encouragingly, we are starting to see at least a few green shoots about new supplies. So two of the deals that launched this morning one for Chepla Farm and one for Bentler. Both of those are net new money deals, and those total across the two of them close to two billion euros of new demand to be absorbed by the high yield market in, in, in that case in those cases. So there is some of that, and we just underwrote a transaction uh, last week for a public to private, uh, which got announced on uh, over the weekend. So that's exciting. We don't really know details out on the size of that, but it's you know, that'll have a fair bit of size to it as well. So the underwriting capacity is there among a somewhat smaller group of banks than than you know sort of pre twenty two. But there is underwriting capacity there for the right kind of deals, and we think that the market demand is there on the investor and lender side. So that should beget more M&A activity and more new money activity. But against that, you know, underneath that potential supply, there's going to be a huge amount still of refinancing activity. Cool. I mean, aside from refinancing, we've also seen a rise in amend and extends during Q1. And we've been told by many banking sources that this is set to continue in Q2. I mean, maybe you could talk us through what you see in A&E pipeline coming forward. Sure. And, and, and again, I, I would put that in, and most probably being too shorthand there, I would put that in the refinancing bucket. So it's you get things like the Loxam bond that we launched this morning where the where the announced size deal is $300 million, which is taking out their $300 million of 2024's straight refinancing trade. I would lump the A&E capacity into that same refinancing bucket. It's just a slightly different mechanism. And I definitely think we're poised to continue there. Uh, we are involved in dialogue, and I'm sure a lot of our competitors are as well, with all of the borrowers that we've got with 25, 26 maturities, engaging with them, explaining to them that the market conditions really are very conducive to doing those kind of extensions. And if anything, the cost of doing those extension trades 
in this current benign window has tightened from where it would have been several months ago. Now, will that last? Can it widen out again? Absolutely. And particularly as you do start to get some exhaustion in terms of the CLO market in Europe and how much capacity it actually physically has to extend tenor, it's not clear that the, that the cost doesn't start to widen out again. So that's the push to the borrowers to say, the market is open, conditions are fairly benign. Yes, pricing's probably improved a bit from several months ago. Don't don't miss the window and find yourself, you know, heaven forbid there's another bank failure or something. But when that exogenous shock happens, and it could just be, you know, wow, the ECB comes out in the next couple of weeks and is more hawkish than people would like them to be, sets the market back a little bit, pricing widens out again. You know, the, the message clearly is don't miss the window. And that's getting increasing traction, I think, with, with borrowers who realize that while there could be a little bit of upside from here in terms of how things trade, there's also potential downside. And it's just, there's not an advantage, there's not an obvious advantage to waiting to do a refinancing trade right now, whether it's an A&E or a, or a straight refi. Okay. And one of the deals that launched this morning was to do with M&A, if I'm correct. I mean, are you seeing M&A uh, making a comeback as well? Yes, we're we're starting to see the stirrings of that. So on on the, you know, on the large cap corporate side, if you think if you sort of skew into the investment grade uh, arena for a second, companies went into this, you know, whatever whatever this is, you know, we went into 2022 if we go back that far, very well positioned. I mean, balance sheets in good shape, lots of liquidity, business models not too challenged. So the investment grade community has been engaged in M&A all along. Clearly, there's been a pause on the leveraged finance side in terms of levered M&A over the course of last year, back half of last year in particular, when it became clear that the market was not really being constructive and there were a lot of deals that were struggling to clear the market and, and having to do so at ultimately very discounted prices. That was a tough market to go and pitch clients to say, hey, it's a great time. <laughs> you should go do an LBO and you know, Bank XYZ will underwrite that transaction for you. That pitch just didn't really exist. We started to feel, though, that there were solutions available to the market. We'll probably talk about direct lending at some point. But there were solutions available in the distributed capital markets really starting in Q4 last year. The, the market tone started to improve substantially. We saw a really good wave of issuance uh, just prior to and in the first half of December. So you started to see the market be able to digest new issue supply. Again, a lot of refinancing trades, but a lot of marginal incremental money was raised in that window as well. And you started to feel the investors and lenders come back, start to be more constructive, have money to put to work. And it's taken a while to get that message out to the whether it's corporates and the, and the one today that's M&A related is a, is a corporate issuer as opposed to a sponsor-owned company. But to get that message to the corporate uh, issuers and borrowers and also to the financial sponsors that, yes, money is available in the distributed market. It's not as deep a pool as it was you know, in 2021. Yes, it's priced wider, but it is available. And if you have the right transaction, and I think about the one that we launched today that was an underwritten deal or the one that we underwrote last week, if you get the right combination of good business profile, good ownership, sensible leverage, and the right pricing package, there should be demand to underwrite those transactions. And as a result, we hope that will spur more M&A activity over time. But that message is still sinking in with the, with the corporate and, and financial sponsor borrowers and issuers. And it's just taking a while to get people to restart that. And these processes take time. So even if you get 
someone who gets excited about a transaction now and says, that's great, we're going to go sort of try to put together a deal to take over company X, that may not come to market for three to six months. So I think what we'll see is a build of the pipeline toward the back half of the year. We'd be further advanced in that process right now, I think, if we hadn't had the setbacks with the bank failures because we were on that trajectory from the start of the year. And then we just got a little friction as a result of that. But now it sounds, seems like that process has restarted in earnest. Yeah, I mean, this, this is sort of leading into my next question, but maybe it's already sort of been answered. But yeah, I mean, with the banking crisis, the confidence was low amongst sponsors. I mean, did you see that hesitance from them to sort of reach out to banks and try and underwrite deals for LBOs? I mean, do you think it's sort of towards the end of this year that they'll come back? Yeah, again, I think we, we look, we were engaged in dialogue right along during that period. So, you know, we, we executed a transaction. There was that weekend. So there was the CS weekend. And then the following Friday, there was a lot of noise in the market around Deutsche Bank, which was pretty disruptive. We were supposed to launch a deal the following Monday, uh, which was the Stark add-on uh, loan deal. And we just delayed that for two days and finally launched it on Wednesday because it felt like the market had, you know, got had calmed down sufficiently to price that deal. So all through that period, we were, you know, discussions discussions got perhaps slowed a bit, but they didn't stop. It wasn't, oh, you know, here we go again, market shut. Yeah, the market was clearly open during that period. It just got temporarily more expensive. But we really haven't seen the, the dialogue has been ongoing throughout. Um, so the transaction that we underwrote last week, for example, I mean, that's been under discussion for months, years, years, actually. And, and you know, finally got to a point where there was enough confidence uh, with the buyer and with the with us as the financing entity to put that deal together. So, you know, yes, there was a little bit of a pause, but it wasn't a hard stop during that period. Yeah. And you, you mentioned direct lending um, mm-hmm. earlier. I mean, with the dry up of sort of banking um, supply, there was maybe the pivot to the private market. I mean, one recent deal we saw was in, in Valior. Uh, they had uh, two direct lenders uh, contributing a significant portion to their $2.42 billion leveraged buyout. I mean, do you think that this is something that we're going to carry on seeing or are you still bullish about the traditional banking market? Yeah, so I, it, it, you know, these two products are going to have learned to coexist and they're going to continue to coexist. We think direct lending is a very viable uh, market and very viable product, which is one of the reasons that we as a firm have gone into that market ourselves. Uh, so we think that will continue to be a, a competitive product in many, in many respects. But I think if we continue on the trajectory we're on right now within the distributed market, and by that I mean high yield and leverage loans, if we continue on the trajectory we're on now, I think that we're going to get to a much more balanced position versus where we would have been, call it sort of August, September last year, when the distributed markets were really struggling, not only about getting conviction to underwrite new transactions because you really weren't quite confident that the lenders and investors were there on the other side to buy whatever transaction you were going to underwrite, and we were all working through a lot of issues on the on the portfolio of things we had underwritten in late 21 and the first half of 22. So as that pressure came off in those transactions, and one of the ones you mentioned was one of the last ones to get to get placed from that vintage. As those transactions got resolved and the underwriting capacity started to come back, what had been a fairly hard pivot to direct lending as quote unquote the only solution at that period during that period last year. It's now become much more balanced, but we see we continue to see, particularly financial sponsors running dual track processes where they're evaluating a direct lending solution together with the distributed solution, and it's it, look it's frankly common sense in a market that has been as volatile as it has been, 
in the last three years and could continue to be volatile. As we said at the outset, it makes sense to have as many different options as you can if you're going to take a serious run at buying a company. The last thing you need is you get to the finish line and your financing's not there. So we think it will continue to be very, very viable. But that market has also encountered a few challenges. There was a very heavy amount of underwriting into that market in a period when the market was fairly heated and deals were getting done into the direct lending market at stretch leverage when pricing was still very tight. And then when the distributed market corrected very sharply in the second and third quarter of last year, a lot of the direct lenders, I think, found themselves perhaps regretting some of the decisions they'd made in, in 21. Didn't mean that they went away, but it did result in reduced commitment sizes, wider pricing, and frankly, a little more caution about the depth of credit that they were willing to undertake in terms of complexity. So, you know, all these markets move, they don't all move exactly in parallel, but they follow the same longer term trajectory. And I don't think you can you can assume that one will just be completely independent from the other. So right now they seem to be both going in a in, in the same direction, which is, you know, starting to feel more comfortable to put money to work. But, you know, it's it's not it's not all risk on. Yeah, in terms of ratings actions, maybe we can talk about that. Do you think the downgrade wave is still upon us or are we sort of gradually coming out of the woods? I think look, I, I think the evidence would show that the easy downgrades have happened. There will continue to be some, but it's going to be very, very name specific. The agencies were were pretty quick to move on on on, you know, on the downgrade side as we as we got into this cycle last year. But we've even seen some selective upgrades happening uh, in in you know recent upgrades, and most of the rating on balance, the ratings across the market seem to be in a fairly stable place right now. I think it's going to be much more idiosyncratic and very specifically name related. There's not a blanket. Recession's coming, so everybody gets downgraded. They've been actually, I, I'll give them credit, I think they've been very thoughtful in their approach to how they've treated individual companies. Might have been a little bit more one size fits all when we hit the difficult periods last year. But once we got through that, I think it's been very you know, thoughtful, as I, as, I, as I said, and they've been very company specific in terms of their analysis. So touch wood, since I always try to be optimistic. I think we're, I don't think we're going to see an upgrade cycle anytime soon, but I think they'll continue to be very constructive. We kind of touched upon uh, the sort of Credit Suisse stuff, but um, I mean, the merger between Credit Suisse and UBS, banking sources told Ninefin that this sort of spooked investors to delay the launch of their deals during the first quarter. And we kind of, you know, touched on that as well. But I mean, how do you think this will impact the opportunities for other banking arrangers in the market going forward? Ooh, that's a, I'll, I'll be diplomatic on this. You know, it's hard to tell. It's it's early innings, uh, and, and I don't have any particular insight into the combination of the two institutions, CS and UBS. Clearly, you know, they've both been active in the leverage finance markets historically, and in Europe in particular, and I just don't really know what they're going to decide to do, whether that's a combination platform that gets recommitted to the leverage finance product or whether it's a move away and shift of the bank becomes much more into the wealth management and consumer banking side. So I don't really have a call on that. It certainly has meant though, and it's not CS slash UBS specific, but certainly what we've seen through a really difficult 2022 is a number of institutions have found their business model to be very challenging in leverage finance, stating the painfully obvious. And depending on the institution, you might have had a greater or lesser share of losses versus the scale of your business. So, you know, if you put aside league tables as a gauge, but look just more at 
what sort of revenue generation institutions have in the leverage finance space and then weigh that against the amount of losses that they took on underwritten positions last year. You find very different outcomes across institutions and there are surprising there are some surprising outliers and you know not our business to be naming names at all, but there are some surprising outliers where the amount of losses versus the scale of the business was a little bit, you know, sort of beyond what you'd expect. And as a result, some of those institutions are going to be less willing to go and put on additional risk as we as we come what into what we hope is a more constructive uh, window. But look, there's still a lot of competition out there. I do think the field has narrowed somewhat. You know, you started out asking about CES, UBS. You know, for now, perhaps they're going to be a little less active. But there's nothing that says that in six to nine months they don't rededicate themselves to this and come back in as a serious competitor. So. The, the landscape has definitely shifted, and I think the number of currently viable active underwriters is, is less. But if we've seen anything in this business, it is cyclical. We've been lucky enough to avoid a hard cycle for quite some time, and then last year was extremely difficult. But if anything, we've seen through a number of past difficult patches in the leverage finance market, whether that was the dot-com era or the GFC or now last year, banks tend to come back once they've been, you know, once they've rested for a while and lick their wounds, they tend to come back uh, because it's a very interesting and attractive space and supports a lot of other areas of the institutions in terms of generating M&A activity or equity capital markets activity. Okay. I guess for my final question, uh, looking forward for the pipeline for the rest of 2023, I mean, do you see any sort of sector specific, you know, any names that you think will be coming? And I guess maybe you, you have experience to the U.S. as well? Like maybe we could talk about Europe versus U.S. and what sort of stuff you see coming as well? Yeah. So it, it, it's, I don't think we're going to see any particular sector completely inactive. I mean, one of, the, one of the surprising things about the first three to four months of this year was the amount of activity in the chemical space, which if you, you just sort of do the benchmark rule of thumb, oh, it's a very cyclical space, you know, trends are pointing downward, it's going to be very difficult. And yet we had a huge amount of financing activity in that space, including a number of dividend transactions. So I don't think any particular sector is offside. And I think the activity will be spread across a huge number of names, particularly because some of the cyclicals are in that bucket of names that need to get refinanced and 25 and 26 maturities that need to get addressed. And yes, they may find that their executions are more expensive as a result if they approach the market, but I don't think anyone is shut out of the market. I think the, the, the businesses that will struggle are those that have either specific headwinds, and that could be anything from energy inputs to supply chain problems to you know geographic exposure to difficult regions like, like Russian exposure. Companies that have struggled financially from that point of view or find themselves in a position of having too much leverage to sustainably refinance their capital structures. So it may be that the leverage point looked fine two years ago when the cost of debt was 4%. But when you come out and have to extend that debt to an 8 or 9% cost of debt, perhaps they can't sustain the cash flows. Uh, so those kinds of names, which are positioned in a number of different industries, I think will struggle. But I don't think there's any sort of blanket concern on any particular sector. Uh, I do think we'll be active through the back half of the year. The pipeline, the pipeline is less visible than I think it has been at any point in the last several years because you don't have the known M&A pipeline. And the A&E and refinancing activity tends to get cooked up behind the scenes with a small number of, of, of banks who are positioning 
companies to come to market. So you see a fair amount of activity that just appears on screens. It's obviously not a surprise to the company or the banks that are arranging the transaction, but to other banks who aren't involved or to you know the, the financial press, you don't necessarily see those coming. You might have them on your forward calendar as someone who needs to do a refinancing, but when and if that's going to pop up very much depends on the market window, which is why I think we're seeing this level of activity come now and, and as long as we stay in these relatively benign conditions, I think you'll start to see more and more of these refinancing trades pop up, which will fuel volume in the back half of the year, together with what we discussed before about the, the potential pickup in the M&A calendar. So we're cautiously optimistic on volumes for the rest of the year. It's not going to be a great year by any stretch, but I think we'll be much more back to a long-term you know, norm in terms of activity with an unfortunate skew a bit more toward refinancing than, than new money activity through M&A. Okay. And would you say that's sort of synonymous with the U.S. activity as well? Oh, I'm or? sorry. I forgot to answer that part of the question. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. The, the two markets have been moving in parallel. I think the U.S. market's a little hungrier right now than we are. It's a much bigger market and has gotten more comfortable. Obviously, it doesn't have, on a lot of the U.S. names, you don't have some of the regional challenges that we've had here. You didn't have the energy challenge, which you know, we got through last winter and things weren't as bad as people thought, but summer's going to come. People are going to start looking at gas storage again and going to start thinking about how cold this winter is going to be or not be. So we have some unique issues in Europe which don't affect the U.S. And as a result, I think they're a little more bullish and a little more a little more willing to, to do volume. But it's the same challenge in terms of creating that activity. So they've got very similar maturity profiles in terms of the overall market in the U.S. They've also had the same challenges around M&A in terms of financing not being available for periods last year. But I think, if anything, their activity should be on a relative basis. You know, there'll be greater relative uh, activity in the U.S. than there will be in Europe through the back half of the year. Okay, great. That's uh, pretty much all we've got time for today. Thanks so much for taking the time to share your insights with Cloud9Fin, Ben. Any final thoughts? Nope. Uh, thanks again. Appreciate it. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, hopefully we, we do go in a positive direction through the back half of the year and, and conditions stay more constructive than less so. And we soldier on. Great. And thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in. Please let us know if you have any feedback on today's podcast by emailing team at ninefin.com. Be sure to check in next week for the latest episode of Cloud9Fin, and we'll see you then. Thank you.